Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Of course, you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, Alan Dempsey does our engineering each weekend, and Andrew Hurdliska is our producer. Uh, Dr. David Beckwith joins us in this first segment. We're so glad that he does. He's in Irvine, California, and his book is out, Your Winning Edge. David, welcome back. Uh, we talked a while back, and I'm glad we can hook up again. How are you? Yes, going well. Good to chat with you again, Pat. David, uh, tell me about your winning edge. Uh, what, what's the story here? What's the background? Yeah. Well, um, you know, when I when I heard the verse that's in the Bible, <clears throat> the Bible says, when I'm weak, I'm strong, I was clueless. I don't have any idea what in the world that meant, you know. Uh, I grew up thinking, you know, weakness was for wimps, losers, and uh, um, uh, and what I've discovered is that uh, God's power wants to be displayed in those those points where I'm I'm weak in life. So I say a great weakness is a pretense of strength, while a great strength is a humble acknowledgement of weakness. So, and and that is what your winning edge is. Is that is yeah. that. Right. <laughs> it's uh, God's power perfected in those moments of weakness. Mm-hmm. We all have our, we all have weaknesses, all right? Uh, usually we like to camouflage them and hope nobody notices our weaknesses. And uh, God just has a whole different approach to that. He designed us with weaknesses. And uh, when we learn to uh, trust him in those weaknesses, he has a way of displaying his power through them. David, what is the opening chapter about? Yeah, the opening chapter, I kind of talk about my own journey. Um, growing up, uh, loving athletics and, and uh, went to college. Uh, anyway, I tell the dramatic story of a uh, head-on collision. My wife and I were returning from a Dodger ball game mm. and um, about one thirty in the morning. Uh, and... Um, what we didn't know, the developer on the other side of the freeway was a, a lady that was stone drunk and mm. got on the freeway going in the wrong direction. And uh, police officers spotted her. Uh, they jumped a center divider. They tried to, to scream at her through the PA system and put the spotlight into her eyes, and she just kept barreling forward. So I came up over a little hill and um, uh, didn't have any warning of plowed, plowed into her combined speed of about 130 miles an hour. Oh, my goodness. Our two vehicles. So <clears throat> I was trapped inside of the car, and um, uh, there was no time for jaws of life, and uh, police officers came over. They tried to open the the left uh, driver's door, uh, and... Uh, Um, the flames had begun to come up through the engine compartment and it was working against uh, uh, an explosion there. Finally, they were able to get that door open. They pulled me out screaming. And uh, so I I came to lying on the freeway with glass in my back and smelling the the, uh, smoke and seeing the siren, uh, the lights and everything. And uh, there was my bride um, over me, uh, quoting uh, Psalm 23, uh, though I would walk through the valley of shadow of death, you are with me. Well, uh, the month that ensued after that was a whole process of just learning. I didn't have the strength for life. I couldn't control things. And... uh, we had one thing after another that seemed to go wrong. It was a whole year of, of learning. And uh, so that began a process of discovering how God's power could be there uh, for me during my strength. So that's a lot of what Chapter 1 is. Now, how does that fit with Chapter 2? Yeah, Chapter 2, I go into talking about the different types of weaknesses. And I named three different kinds of weaknesses. There are personal limitations that we all have, all right, whatever they might be. Um, a physical limitation might be a limitation in our personality. Uh, it 
boat and maybe we're poor at math or, or poor at reading maps or whatever it happens to be. So we all have some personal limitations. Secondly, personal wounds. We've all been wounded and hurt in the journey of life. And God wants to take those wounds. And as we discover his power in those, a lot of times the the uh, impact we'll have in life helping others comes out of our own personal woundedness. And uh, then I talk about third area, which is personal sin. And God wants to change that. And then a uh, misuse of strength uh, where we rely on our strength and never really uh, realize our potential because we're relying on those. So, David, let me, uh, let me let me let me go back over them. Personal limitations, personal wounds, and personal sin. Right. Is that right? Right. And then fourth one is the misuse of strength. I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, Pat, you were you've been in the athletic world. Let's say you've got a great great athlete, incredible ability, and he's grown up. He he can. Uh, he cannot. He can break training rules. Um, he relies on his strength. Uh, he can goof off and still come out ahead. He never realizes his potential. That's a misuse of a strength that then is a weakness because he's relying on his on his natural ability instead of relying on God. Now move to the third chapter for us, David. We've uh, we've covered that first compelling chapter frightening really yeah. and then we yeah. and we uh hit tap two now now uh keep moving with us now uh tell us about chapter three yeah chapter three closely related to this uh i talk about the battle that goes on in the mind and i entitled that chapter diffusing tormentors uh in the mind and this area of weakness uh to identify those weaknesses but then how to overcome the uh, things that are in our minds. So I talk about uh, uh, removing scarring memories of a tragic accident, uh, post-traumatic stress from war, shattered personal wounds, uh, worth, um, scarring mental or physical abuse, all of those things. So I talk about the amazing process and the research into how the, how the mind can literally be reprogrammed by the power of God and the Word of God. What's your advice on studying the Word of God? How do we go about that? Well, you know, uh, I'm a great advocate of, of memorization, but probably most of us kind of uh, back off on that. You know, I don't know. I, I have a hard time remembering names, let alone uh, memorizing uh, actually, the word memorization is never used in the Bible, but it talks about meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, over and over again, it says meditation is the key. So here's what I recommend for people. Uh, get a verse or a passage of Scripture, carry it with you during the week, and meditate on it. That means come back to it over and over and over again. Think about it. Amplify it in your thinking. What happens if you meditate on a verse for a week you end the week and go, oh, I've memorized it. So uh, the memorization can happen from continually uh, meditating on it. Is it like a cow chewing the cud? Yep, that's a great illustration of it. So, uh, yeah, continually thinking about it. Um, uh, I call it to, uh, David says, I dance to your revelations, you know. Uh, you find a joy and a delight in affection and scripture. So uh, um, that that has been transforming of my mind. Dr. David Beckwith is with us from California. We've got another segment with him. In the meantime, let me remind you, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, uh, the Orlando Dreamers. We must show baseball that there's tremendous interest here. So head up to the website we've got set up, orlandodreamers.com, and just uh, and, and just check in there and say, yes, I think this would be terrific. Baseball in Orlando makes sense. Uh, we want to do it, orlandodreamers.com. The more people that respond, uh, the stronger the message to Major League Baseball. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour 
on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word more after this. My guest is Dr. David Beckwith. Uh, He's in Irvine, California. His book, uh, Your Winning Edge. David, we've covered uh, head on with life, discovering power and weakness, diffusing tormentors in the mind. I want you to talk about these two topics that you write about, releasing resentments and releasing regrets. Uh, Fill us in on those two. Yes. uh, There's two things that tend to hold us back in life. Uh, One are resentments that we have. Uh, The other is regrets that we have. Resentments may be against uh, uh, other people, things that they have done to us. Uh, It may be uh, resentments we have against ourselves or resentments uh, we have against God. Uh, So resentments will hold us back. And uh, I compare it to a a headlock. Uh, You don't want somebody to put a a headlock on you. And resentments grip us like a a headlock. And um, so being able to release resentments. So I've worked with so many people leading them through this. Uh, My wife and I do a lot of work with pastors and wives uh, through Standing Stone Ministry. And we find many of them, through the hurts and wounds they have, have a lot of built-up resentment inside. So I outline a four-step process to be able to release resentments. And I recommend for people, if necessary, they go over those uh, every single day because they're so crucial. And it's been a a joy to see that. So the flip side to that uh, are, are regrets. And we all have regrets. You know, stupid things we've done things we said, or we go, I shouldn't have said. Uh, um, so we all have some regrets that hold us back. And a lot of times we're more, we're more, more focused on our, our regrets and our guilt than we are in the grace of God. And God wants to set you free uh, from regrets that you have. So I talk about uh, the process of, of being able to do that. I was at um, a breakfast one morning and uh, um, at a conference and put it out. I wish I had the name of the lady who gave me the great insight. And we're talking about regrets. And um, I put the question out there, you know, we always hear the the phrase, uh, you just got to forgive yourself. And this lady asked the question, well, is that really possible? And uh, does the Bible teach forgiving yourself? And I went through all the verses that could come to mind. I was, I guess I don't know a verse that says you've got to forgive yourself. Now, it does say to forgive your enemies. If you are your own worst enemy, then I guess that includes forgiving yourself. But she pointed out that being able to release regrets and literally to experience forgiveness we have to, we have to, that is powerfully supernatural. And we've got to accept God's forgiveness of us. That's the power. Otherwise, we're powerless to be able to do it. You know, you forgive yourself one day and the next day it's back again. And you're still um, bouncing around those regrets. Dr. David Beckwith is with us. He's in California. The name of his book, Your Winning Edge. Uh, David, in Chapter 6, Fixing the Weaknesses in Others with a Question Mark, uh, what's that about? Yes. Um, we often wonder about how to be able to fix other people and their, and their weaknesses. And I'm often asked that when I, I speak, you know, is it possible to change my husband? Is it possible to change your wife? Whatever. Uh, my first answer is no. Okay. The reason is changing people is God's business, not mine. All right. And so in my relationships with others, I release that. I say, take off your I'm out to change you badge. Don't wear that anymore. Okay. Now, that said, there are things that we can do to cooperate with God who helps others change. And I go through, I call them the ADCs of being involved as a God agent to help somebody in the process of change. 
And the first of those is to accept them with unconditional love. Uh, the second is to believe in God's power and their potential. And the third uh, is a process communicating the truth and love with them. So, yes, God can use us to help somebody change, but we create the, uh, the environment where change then is possible. Now, David, at the end of your book, uh, your winning edge to thrive, uh, what are you telling us there? Um, <clears throat> yes, uh, repeat that again, Pastor. At the end of the book, uh, there's a segment called Your Winning Edge to Thrive. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I, I want to hear about that. Okay. Well, you know, I write, um, I use a lot of stories, a lot of humor, and I wrap it around rock solid biblical uh, truth. And uh, I personally have experienced this of uh, learning to thrive. Um, welcoming the weaknesses in my life and surrendering them before God and allowing Him to take over and be the power and strength of my life in, in those areas. Um, you know, if we realize our failure didn't catch God off guard, so, you know, don't beat yourself up with failure. Be patient with yourself. God is at work. And one of God's most effective means in the process of failure. So many believers are simply frantic over the fact of failure in their lives. They'll go to all lakes and try to hide it, ignore it, or rationalize about it. But failure where self is concerned in our Christian life and service is often allowed and engineered by God in order to turn us completely from ourselves to a source of life, which is Christ Jesus. This is the process of God wanting to thrive uh, in our weaknesses. I'm curious, uh, David, what prompted you uh, to write this book and dig into all these aspects that you've been sharing with us? What uh, what was the trigger? I would say my own frustrations, Pat. Um, frustrations with my anger, depression. Uh, my own uh, weaknesses that I had to come face-to-face with. So it's been a a process. You know, I often felt like if I could just formulate, I'm I'm very goal-oriented, if I could just formulate the right set of goals and uh, get my will dialed up strong enough, I'd be able to achieve it. So... You know, talk about making New Year's resolutions. I've made uh, who knows how many of those. I don't make New Year's resolutions anymore. Um, I ask God for a New Year's revolution. So I identify those areas where I need to yield to Him. So there's a difference between striving with the will, with the will, and surrendering the will. And the key is in a surrendered will. So I will identify those areas where I want to see God do a transforming work in my life. It's just a simple Mac is that, Lord, I, I surrender this area to you. You're going to have to take over because I screw it up every time. So that's, that's the process in my life. What is your counsel, David, uh, to people who have been listening to us or have read your book or will read your book? Uh, what's the best advice you can give them? Well, uh, I impart hope to the discouraged, the downhearted. Um, again, I come back to that. Um, if we're disappointed in ourselves, it comes from believing itself. Um, disappointment um, arises from that. Instead, allow God to take care of, get acquainted with your weaknesses. I go through about 60 areas of different weaknesses and their potential strength. So um, as you begin to discover those, you're going to watch God display himself in new ways. Uh, it's an ir- irony. We always, we always hope others won't discover our weaknesses. Paul said, I boast about my weaknesses. Well, there's a flip for you. Mm. And so to be able to go, you know, this area is a weakness of mine, and God just takes over and... That's my winning edge. 
David, if you could uh, miraculously have lunch with the Apostle Paul today, what would you want to talk to him about? I'd I'd love to hear him talk about Romans 7, you know? You know, uh, Paul talks about his frustration that he had. I I would I want to do what I should do. I I can't do it. I'm frustrated with myself. Um, for whatever reason, Paul didn't tell us what that was. It may have been um, may have been something that was very embarrassing. Um, it may have been something that his enemies could have used against him. Anyway, we know he's frustrated. I think. Paul and his traveling companions, he probably shared it with them. It's probably something he couldn't share um, in, a, in a wider sense, we'll be honest. But I think he shared it with his, uh, the guys that traveled with him. I think they prayed for him in that. And so um, I, I'd love to hear him talk more about that. Which of Paul's epistles, David, uh, is your uh, go-to book? Oh, I love I love Second Corinthians. Mm-hmm. I think we get into Second Corinthians less than, than we realize. Second Corinthians is Paul laying there his his heart and his soul, the agony, the um, talking about depression, and then relating to how God has displayed himself, how God's taken over in his weakness, um, how his weaknesses have become a PowerPoint, a displaying point of the power of God in his life. So Second Corinthians, a great, great book. I want you to talk for a few minutes about Paul as a leader. What were his greatest strengths as a leader, David? Well, I think... I think Paul would have risen to the top of just about any uh, company you put him in. Mm-hmm. So he was certainly, you know, I think he'd be a, a Fortune 500 kind of a leader. All right, so he had a lot of natural things. Uh, of course, he had a, a tremendous resume at all these things that he had accomplished. And Philippians tells us how he says, I've taken all that stuff, all those accolades, all of that. He says, I'm taking it out with the trash. Uh, he says it's done. Um, so he learned the power to be a great leader uh, by not relying on his natural training or his natural strengths or training or those kinds of things. Um, and I think there we discover the great, uh, potential for a person to be a leader. David Beckwith, uh, who's authored the book, Your Winning Edge. Uh, David, um, I want you to talk about when you, no, here, here, I think this is more important. Uh, w- with that wreck, yeah. what became of your wife in that wreck? And secondly, the lady who had been drinking, uh, what became of her? Did she survive? Yes. Uh, she was killed instantly. Really? Uh, we had a six of us in the car, so I was a youth pastor at the time. Everybody was rescued out of the car. Uh, my wife had a serious cut that went through her cheekbone, and uh, God spared her from uh, a cut into her eye by a fraction of an inch. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, it's just amazing. It was one of those incidents in life where, where God's saying, I still want you around, buddy. I've got work for you to do because we certainly <clears throat> certainly should have died in that auto accident. I was actually pulled out of the car about 15 seconds before the, the thing exploded. So uh, that was very clear. Doctor, those months, yeah, go ahead. I want you to finish. Go ahead, David. Finish that last statement. Yeah. Well, those months that followed were so disillusioning. Um, we borrowed uh, my father-in-law's car, came down one morning, and uh, somebody had stolen it, no insurance to cover it. We, we got a, had a fire in the apartment. I had my wallet stolen, and I, and I was out of work. You know? So mm. it was a whole year of things, wondering how in the world uh, we were going to 
of the fact that you're a Dodge fan. I want to disappoint myself so you get weaknesses. Dr. David Beckwith has been our guest. We've got more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. David Beckwith, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Your Winning Edge. Uh, we go from uh, Irvine, California to Nashville. Uh, we found uh, Andrew Peterson there, author of Adorning the Dark. Andrew, welcome. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good to talk to you. Andrew, I want you to tell me about this book, Adorning the Dark, uh, how it came about, and uh, what prompted you to write it. Yeah, well, I'm a, a singer-songwriter, and I've written a few books, and um have uh you know been doing this for a couple of decades now and have thought before that uh you know about the books that were helpful to me in the creative process and um but over the years have kind of um you know it's it's hard to think uh, imagine saying anything that hasn't already been said and about maybe five years ago i was going into the studio to make a new record and uh and it's kind of like um it's kind of like cramming for a final exam. Like there's, there's this sense of panic, um, the weeks before you go into the studio, uh, to make sure that you've got all the songs you need. And, and, uh, and I didn't, and I, I remember going there the first day of the studio, sitting down with the producer and just, um, just feeling this overwhelming, it's kind of like standing at the base of a mountain that you knew you had to climb and just feeling completely inadequate to the task. And, uh, you know, it was like my eighth record or something. So it was all, I'd been there before. Um, But I just kind of felt like, um, you know, this familiar, um, you know, imposter syndrome and uh, feeling like you'll, you'll you'll never say anything interesting again and all of the long list of things that go through your mind when you're staring at a blank page. And so I got home from the studio that day and thought, you know, what if I were to just journal just write in my journal, uh, kind of pray sort of in my journal, um, asking, uh, God for help, but also just to kind of like pour out onto the paper, everything that I was feeling, all of the insecurity, all of the fear and the hope and all that kind of stuff that goes into the project. And so it worked. I, I, my, my goal was to just try to grease the wheel a little bit and get the writing juices flowing, you know? And then, uh, you know, I look back two months later and the record was finished and I made it and I kind of forgot about the journal writing for a few years. And uh, anyway, not not that long ago, I looked back at that journal and I, I thought, you know, I've never really read a book on the creative process that was uh, that was about kind of so uh, so intimately about what was going on inside of the person who was creating it. You know what I mean? And uh, and so I thought, I wonder if I could just wrangle these thoughts into a book and and uh, and have it be one part memoir you know, kind of my story about my stumbling journey of being an author and a uh, songwriter, but also uh, as a way of just encouraging people, you know, like I think, I don't think one of the, one of the things that, that I feel the most when I'm in that situation is that I'm, I'm the only one who knows what it feels like, right? This fear of, of like, Oh, there's something wrong with me that isn't wrong with everybody else. And so I wanted the book to be a way to encourage people to say either one of two things is true. A, you're not as crazy as you think you are. <laughs> or uh, if you're feeling all these things, maybe it is that you're crazy, but you're not the only one, and uh, you're, you're in good company. And so uh, that's, that's kind of the, the start of how, where the book came from. I want you to uh, explain to us uh, these six principles for the writing life that you, uh, you cover. Let's start with the first one, and then we'll uh, move from there. Uh, serving the work. Uh, what does that mean, Andrew? Well, I think uh, that's a that's a phrase that I lifted from an author named Madeline Langle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, and uh, she wrote a wonderful book called Walking on Water, which was her sort of theology uh, of like what it means to be a Christian who is also a writer, mm-hmm. and and it helped it helped me a lot when I was had just moved to Nashville back in the '90s and was trying to figure out what my calling was, how to articulate what it is that I was trying to do. And she kept talking in the book about serving the work. And, um, and it, it's an interesting idea. And I think that a lot of times, like if, if, uh, 
one of the things that is that can be bad about art, and I and I don't even just mean Christian art. I mean I go to movies that uh, that where you feel like the agenda is on full display, you know, and uh, and you, you're in the story, and then all of a sudden you get this feeling that the writers of the story had this giant point that they wanted to make, and that point superseded the the kind of great mystery of what it means to tell a good story, and it snaps you out of the thing, right? And so sometimes I think people can sit down to do, to write something and have uh, a point that you're trying to make or an agenda in mind, and and you use that agenda um, to kind of bully the 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 work of art, uh, and I use that term very loosely into being. Um, so, for example, if I sat, if I sat down to write a, a story, and I was like, I'm going to write a story about courage, and I got you know. 10,000 words into it and the story kept like leaning another direction and trying to be about something else. I can either uh, force the story in to, to obey my original agenda or I can allow the story to grow into something that might surprise me. Right. And I think as a Christian, I, I, I see that as the Holy spirit at work. I think that that's like uh, you, you're giving, you're giving the work the freedom to become something greater than you intended. And so I think that's what I'm getting at is that you have to hold very loosely to your idea of what the thing needs to be and give it the freedom to, uh, to grow. And it's a very weird thing. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember reading about this before I wrote my first novel about how authors would talk about how the characters would begin to do and say things that, that surprised the author. And I was like, how in the world could that happen? You know? Uh, and sure enough, once, once I got to know my characters and I got deep enough into the story, you have this weird sense that the story is kind of tugging you along. And, uh, and I think that serving the work means letting it. Now, I want you to move to the second one. Andrew Peterson is our guest. Uh, the book is called Adorning the Dark. Uh, second principle, serving the audience. Uh, we want to hear about this one. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and this especially, you know, there's a broad principle at work, but I'm, I'm coming at this especially as a writer and a songwriter, but the, there is a, you can, you can forget to love that, that, that the art that you're making, that the, the, the talk that you're giving, the sermon you're preaching, the, whatever it may be, is, is not meant to just be self-expression, um, that I believe that our creativity is a way to love someone, right? Like we've been given our gifts as a way to lay down our lives for others and to, to love the people that are in our path, right? So uh, if you, um, if one of the examples that I give in the book is the, this idea that um, sometimes as a writer, you can show off, you can, you can try to like show people how clever you are. And, uh, and which in the end is a, is a kind of bad self-expression where you're just drawing attention to yourself. Um, Instead of asking yourself, um, how can I best um, draw attention to the to the um, the thing that the song is about, not the writer of the song? And so, uh, at every turn, when you're when you're uh, you know um, putting on a concert or uh, decorating your house, um, I think that the idea is not I just want to show people how unique and special I am. The idea is. I want to love people. I want people to feel a certain kind of comfort or uh, longing or whatever it may be that you, your your end goal is with the art. And so I remember reading an article about Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist, and how he had stage fright um, for a while, and which is so <laughs> ironic to me that uh, he's one of the great cellists of, in the world and that he, that he struggled with stage fright. And he said that... Uh, the way he got over it was that he he realized one day that he did not feel any kind of anxiety when he hosted a dinner party, that he loved hosting a dinner party. Um, he loved to make people feel comfortable in his home. Um, he loved being in charge of it. He had no problem uh, hosting. Um, and so he just needed to start to think of his concerts as a giant dinner party that he was hosting. And so it, it, it went from him being full of fear because he was there to try to impress people, and it was about him, to turning the tables and saying, I'm going to actually serve these people and try to make them feel comfortable and love them with this music. And uh, I think that's kind of at the heart of what it means to serve the audience. Now, Andrew, let's uh, go to the third area that you write about, serving the work, serving the audience. 
Uh, number three is called selectivity. Uh, explain that one. Well, selectivity is uh, the idea is that when I listen to my earliest songs, or uh, which thank goodness I don't do very often, um, they're they were terrible. But when I when you come across young songwriters, or you know you hear somebody speak when they're just starting to figure it out, is is a lot of times people are saying too many things. Um, I think it's so easy to kind of like. Uh, over-prepare and make the song or the sermon or whatever it is, you make it about everything instead of about one thing. And so, um, you know, young songwriters tend to write songs that are way too long um, because they haven't figured out how to make the song about one thing. The example that I give in the book is that uh, we live in the country here in Tennessee, and um, I tapped a sugar maple tree in, in the woods near my house just because I just get these wild hairs, and I was like, I want to make my own maple syrup. Mm. And, uh, and, I, and I learned that uh, um, that in order to make maple syrup, you have to boil down uh, the sap um, at a 40 to 1 ratio. So 40 gallons of maple sap gives you one gallon of maple syrup. <laughs> it's mm. crazy. And so I drilled the hole in the tree. You know, I hung the bucket from the thing, and the sap comes out, and it looks like water. Mm. And if you taste it, it tastes like water. You, it's hard to believe that there's any sugar in there. And so, you know, it takes all day to boil the sap down into this sweet, wonderful thing that you can put on your pancakes. And I think that's part of the idea of selectivity is as a, as a writer, uh, whatever the project is, you have to figure out how to boil it down to that one thing so that, so that it can be received and people know what it is. Um, and one of the great uh, examples of that kind of selectivity is, is the Gospels. I think that uh, um, they're very short, if you think about it, compared to the rest of the Bible. Like, we know very little about what Jesus actually did <laughs> when he was on earth. Um, so the, the writers of the Gospels, with the help of the Holy Spirit, um, narrowed it down to what it, what it is that we needed to know about him, you know, um, in order to know Christ. And so that's kind of the idea. And there's actually this great line at the end of the book of John, the Gospel of John, where it says, um, you know, if we were to write down everything that Jesus did, all the libraries in the world couldn't contain the books. Um, and so there's a perfect example of, you can't write it all down. You've got to just focus on what, what the listener needs to know. I must say, Andrew, that verse that you just shared really, really fascinates me. What more yeah. would we have acquired if they, I guess if they had been writing faster back then? Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Our first guest was Dr. David Beckwith, uh, author of Your Winning Edge. And then Andrew Peterson joined us uh, from Nashville, uh, the book Adorning the Dark. Uh, my latest book is out. Uh, it's called Lead Like Walt. And we take a look at Walt Disney uh, through the seven leadership principles that he possessed uh, that uh, really allowed him uh, to become one of the greatest leaders our country and the world has ever seen. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this book. Uh, Brooke and um, his brother, Brooke Lopez, and his twin brother, Robin, wrote the foreword. They are absolute Disney nuts, the two NBA centers. Quite a story. So we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, the new AM 990 FM 101.5, The Word. Stay tuned all day and have a great week ahead. And uh, one day in eternity, we'll, we'll have time to di- dive into the rest of the story, I think. But we have what we need. Andrew, I'm curious about storytelling. It seems we're all hardwired to retain stories, not PowerPoints. Uh, uh, tell us your theory on storytelling, why it's so important to us. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a quote that I, that I don't remember who said it first, um, but I just loved it when I heard it. It was this, if you want someone to know the truth, tell them. If you want someone to love the truth, tell them a story. And I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm a pastor's kid, and so I grew up in mostly in North Florida, listening to my dad preach every Sunday, twice twice a Sunday, Sunday evening and Sunday morning. And, uh, and I just, uh, I counted, counted it up one time, how many thousands of sermons that I heard my dad preach. And, uh, 
And I just, I remember vividly as a little boy, you know, you get antsy in church and like, uh, he's my dad, so it's probably a little harder to listen to than for other people. And I would be kind of zoned out while he was doing the expository stuff and digging into some verse that Paul wrote, you know. Um, But then when he would try to make a point and say something like, the other day I was at the feed store and I bumped into so-and-so and this thing happened, you could feel the air in the room change. Like the whole... Everybody would stop fidgeting. We would all lean in because now we're getting a story. And uh, and so from a very young age, I had this real sense that stories were there. There was a resonance like our, our the radar in our hearts is kind of like or the needle is kind of swinging wildly. And as soon as the story starts getting told, then it stops wiggling and, and we tune in. My guest is Andrew Peterson, the book Adorning the Dark. We need to uh, pay the bills here. We're back uh, right after that on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Author Andrew Peterson is with us from Nashville, his book, Adorning the Dark. Uh, Andrew, let's get back uh, to these six principles. Uh, We've covered serving the work, serving the audience, selectivity. Now, here's the fourth principle that you write about. It's called discernment. Uh, Fill us in on that. Well, uh, this one is uh, pretty short and easy, but the idea is just that um, I think that um, it's 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 easy, especially in the church, to uh, to 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 not worry so much about the craft um, and to worry more about the uh, the what people intended or or to kind of give people a free pass because they were they were telling us about Jesus or whatever it may be. But uh, like as a dad, I I was thinking uh, about how one of the best parts of being a dad uh, is that I get to curate my kids um, art for a time. Like there's this narrow window of time when I get to like shape all of the art that is going to form their imaginations as my kids are growing up. And so that means like showing them the, the very best movies and showing them the, 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 you know, exposing them to the best books and the best songs, you know. And so it was so fun, you know, because I had all these movies in my mind. I was like, oh, I can't wait till my sons are old enough to sit down and watch whatever with them. And uh, and so it was really fun to, to to teach them in that sense, like what what I think is, is good and true and beautiful, and then to talk about it, right? And so I realized early on that I would much rather my kids uh, – listen to a great song, like truly great song with a capital G by someone who is not a Christian than a really bad song by someone who is. Like there was something about the common grace that, uh, and, and the craft and teaching them to discern what is excellent and praiseworthy. And, uh, uh, and so, so I think that, that, that if you want to be an artist, if you want to be a writer, then it, it helps to study the craft. And so discernment is kind of like, uh, the the artistic equivalent of looking at the back of the the box to see what the ingredients are, and so I think sometimes if we we teach ourselves what makes for a good film or what makes for a good song, then uh, you can listen to the to the stuff that is lame, <laughs> and and learn what what the bad ingredients are, and and choose things that are going to be edifying instead of things are, that are not. And so uh, I think especially if you're going to be a person who's going to go into any kind of creative field, then you need to, if you want to write poems, then study poetry, you know, um, like learn the craft of poetry so that you can discern what's good and what's bad. Now we move to principle number five, Andrew. It's simply called discipline. Uh, I want you to explain that. So uh, the when I first um, moved to Nashville, uh, I was, let me, how do I get into this? Um, okay, I'll, I'll put it this way. My son, Aiden, is my oldest, and he is a junior in college and is an animation major. He's a really great <laughs> illustrator and artist. And, uh, and he is, uh, like, from a very young age, he, he exhibited this, like, real gift for, for drawing. And so I encouraged him along as best as I could. But, but as my three kids grew up, um, my middle son gravitated to drumming and producing records. That's what he does now. And my, my daughter, who's a senior in high school, is a songwriter. And I've looked at like, okay, uh, you know, they're very talented. Uh, but what I've noticed is that what they've learned that, that outweighs even the talent is the fact that they've grown up in this culture 
here in Nashville where they see every day that, that art is work, that, uh, that you can't just lean on the fact that you can kind of sing, that you actually have to like dig in and, uh, you know, hoe the garden and pull the weeds and, and, uh, and really get your hands dirty, uh, at your craft in order for it to bear fruit. And so the, the idea of discipline is, is one of the biggest ones. It was like, it was like figuring out how to write a book for goodness sake. Uh, it was, um, it was a gigantic lesson in self-discipline and, and realizing that if you want to enjoy the, uh, the harvest, then you have to deal with the, the frustration of sowing and, <laughs> and hoeing and getting the, the stones out of the field. And so, uh, discipline's a huge one. Like, um, that, that, that's the greater thing that my kids learned from growing up in Nashville than any kind of specific talent, uh, that they were born with or, uh, or advantages in that way. Like, I think that what they really grew up with was this idea that, oh, if I want to get good at drawing, that I have to draw and draw and draw and draw. And they've seen that modeled over the years. And so that's discipline. Andrew Peterson, author of Adorning the Dark. Okay, Andrew, we've arrived at the sixth principle, and you call it community. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I mean, I don't think... Uh, I think a lot of people have this uh, idea that uh, of the of the lonely artist, you know, the the artist that kind of holds themselves up somewhere and and uh, comes out of the cave with some amazing jewel that they've uncovered. Um, the truth is, art is. Uh, I believe that art nourishes community and that community nourishes art. Uh, there's a ministry here in Nashville that I was a part of starting called the Rabbit Room, um, and that's one of the things we say is art nourishes community and community nourishes art, which is to say that, that, uh, that there's something about the creative process that draws people together. Um, something about making stuff and enjoying art. Um, it, it, people show up in your life when you start doing that kind of work. And then the other side of it is that, uh, the community, the, the friends that you have, um, in, end up making the art richer and more beautiful than it would have been without them. And so, one of the great examples, I think, is, is C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and the Inklings. Like, their group of friends uh, got together in the pub in, in Oxford, and just because they, they enjoyed the art in the beginning, um, they all were kind of Christians who were also nerds about a certain kind of story, and, and they got together. But I, I would say that the, a lot of people don't realize that the Lord of the Rings exists because C.S. Lewis encouraged Tolkien to keep writing, that... Tolkien may, may have never finished the book because he didn't think anybody would want to read something that long. Mm. And Lewis was this huge fan who said, no, keep writing, keep writing. Like, the world needs these stories, but especially I need these stories. I want to know what happens next. And so that community ended up giving him the gas and the engine that he needed to finish the work. And the, the cool thing to me, though, is that the thing that will outlast any of the songs we write or the books we write or the sermons we preach is the friends. Uh, it's the people that we will be spending eternity with, you know? Um, and so in some mysterious way, I think the stories we tell will carry over into the new creation. I don't know how that works, but I know for sure that, uh, that I am, uh, the, the better part of the bargain <laughs> is the fact that moving to Nashville and, and being in community is not the fact that this community has helped my art to grow, but it's the fact that the art led me into this community of dear, dear friends that I'll have for the rest of eternity. Andrew, the last chapter of your book is called Home is Real. Uh, what are you writing there? Well, I don't want to give the whole book away, uh, <laughs> but I will, <laughs> I will say this, that, the, uh, that I think that the last chapter was my way of kind of getting uh, to the heart of the book, which was, I think, um, by the time I had written everything except for the last chapter, I had realized that the thing that drives so much of what I do is longing. It's, it's this ache that I carry around in me all the time, this kind of homesickness that, that I wish would go away, that kind of just like a little pebble in your shoe. And uh, I think we all feel that to a degree, like when, when things are going as well as they, they could ever go and we still have that tiny little hollow inside us that reminds us that we're not home yet. Um, I think that, that homesickness is the way home. And, uh, and that God has put that in us to remind us of the, the new creation that is coming. 
And so it's like uh, instead of uh, hoping that, that that homesickness would go away, lean into the homesickness and, and let it drive you to, uh, to the mending of the world and the longing for the new creation and the day when we'll walk with, walk with God himself once again. Andrew, what do you want people to take from our discussion? Oh, well, I want them to buy thousands and thousands of my books. Uh, uh, I agree. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Uh, no, I just, I would, uh, the, one of the main themes of the book is just this idea that, that uh, everyone is an image bearer. Everyone is uh, walking around in the world with the image of God in them. And, uh, and part of what that means is that we, um, part of the way that bears itself out is that God is a creating God. Like, right out of the gate in Genesis, um, God created. So that's the first thing we know about him is that he makes things. And I think that sometimes in, in, uh, there's, there's a language that gets tossed around, uh, about creatives. Like, um, we've turned creative into a noun and people think of themselves as a creative. And I just think that's not helpful language. I think every single person you meet is creative. There's not a class of creative people. And the question is, no matter what your job is, whether you're uh, an architect or a doctor or a homemaker. My guest has been Andrew Peterson, the book Adorning the Dark. We've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Our first guest was Dr. David Beckwith, author of Your Winning Edge. And then Andrew Peterson joined us uh, from Nashville, uh, the book Adorning the Dark. Uh, My latest book is out. Uh, It's called Lead Like Walt. And we take a look at Walt Disney uh, through the seven leadership principles that he possessed uh, that uh, really allowed him uh, to become one of the greatest leaders our country and the world has ever seen. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this book, uh, Brooke. And um, his brother, Brooke Lopez, and his twin brother, Robin, wrote the foreword. They are absolute Disney nuts, the two NBA centers. Quite a story. So we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Stay tuned all day and have a great week ahead.